Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Uh, we're going to look at some passages on discovering the divine presence in the world. This is really part of what I would call one of the main thrusts of the Kabbalah, which is reimagining God. In other words, not thinking of God as someone up there who runs the show, but rather a kind of energy that animates and pervades everything. You find that notion of God in the mystical teachings, and we're going to look at some passages from uh, Kabbalistic teachers that talk about God in, in that way. I think you all have this uh, with you. If for some reason you don't, I'm sure your neighbor does. So it's okay to, to share this. Uh, afterward, I'll say a word or two about my online Zohar course. We've been doing that um, weekly uh, during much of 2019. And a new series is going to begin in January. And I'll explain that a little bit. And the last pages of this handout have that uh, in, in detail. But we're starting with a side that says uh, the nature of God. The first three teachings here are from a teacher named Moses Cordovero. His family came from Cordoba in Spain, and that's why he has the name Cordovero. And Cordovero left Spain, or his family left Spain when the Jews were exiled in 1492. And in the following decades, Cordovero gradually made his way to Tzfat, to that beautiful mountain city in the Galilee. I'm going there tomorrow night. I'm sure many of you have. How many of you have been to Safed? The city has like seven different ways to spell it. Wow, that's wonderful. I think about 90% of the people in this room have been to Tzfat. And sometimes that's seen as um, you know, one of the great centers of Kabbalah. It was really because of the exile from Spain in 1492 that Sfat became prominent. It's kind of the silver lining in that dark cloud of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. In fact, you might say that Kabbalah spread to the wider Jewish world because the Jews were expelled from Spain. The Kabbalah developed in Spain. The Zohar was written in Spain in the 13th century. And then several hundred years later, in 1492, when the Jews were expelled, and of course the Muslims were also finally expelled that same year, as Spain was becoming more and more purely Christian, purely Catholic. Um, as a result of that tragic expulsion, Kabbalah spread to the whole Mediterranean Jewish world, and the mystics gathered again in Sfat, many of them tracing themselves to ancestors who lived in Spain. So Cordovero, Moses Cordovero, was one of those Kabbalists in Spain. The more well-known Kabbalist was Isaac Luria. Isaac Luria, known as the Ari, the lion. He was the great teacher in Sfat, 
but Cordovero was there also along with Isaac Luria. So what does Cordovero say about God? Take a look at this first passage. An impoverished person thinks that God is an old man with white hair sitting on a wondrous throne of fire that glitters with countless sparks. The Bible states, the ancient of days sits, the hair on his head like clean fleece, his throne flames of fire. He's quoting a verse in the book of Daniel. It's my book. In that, in that, in that book, uh, Daniel describes God. You could say it's a mystical vision he has of God. Now, why does Cordovero quote that verse? Usually when a rabbi quotes a verse, he wants to explain the verse, he wants to praise the verse. He's quoting the verse to do what? To criticize it. He's quoting this verse and he says, ah, they, they really got it wrong. He's quoting a verse in the Bible and saying it's wrong. It's very unusual for a rabbi to do that, but that's what Cordovero seems to be doing. Look what he says. Imagining this and similar fantasies the fool corporealizes God. What does that mean to corporealize? Turn into a corpus, right? He makes God into a body. He makes it seem like God has a body. If you say God is a king seated on a throne, that's the wrong way to conceive of God. Who is he being influenced by here, would you guess? Cordovero. The great Jewish philosopher, Maimonides. Maimonides said, don't describe God in human form. Now, how did Maimonides read the Torah? The Torah is always describing God in human form, right? God's outstretched arm, God can see, God can feel, God can act. So Maimonides tries to cleanse God of all the anthropomorphisms. Okay, that beautiful, fancy word. Anthropomorphism giving a human form to God or to anything. Moses Maimonides, back in the century, said that's the worst thing you can do to describe God in human form. So he says you should cleanse God of all positive description. You shouldn't say anything positive about God. All you should say is God is not positive. God is not weak. God is not mortal. Don't say God is wise. That makes God sound like some great professor. Don't say God is strong. That makes God sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger back when the, in the old days. Don't describe God in any positive way. Just negate what God is not, and then maybe you'll be left with what God is. The colonists take Maimonides at his word, and they go even further. They actually come up with a name of God, which is nothing. They say the highest level of God is Ayin in Hebrew. Aleph Yud Nun, which means nothing. That's the name for the highest level of God, according to Kabbalah, nothingness. It doesn't really mean nothing, it means no thing. God is no thing. God is the energy that animates everything, but not a thing. It's almost like a physicist would talk about the relation between matter and energy, right? What does a physicist say about matter and energy? Matter is really energy, but it's energy that's frozen. It's frozen energy, or it's energy that is slowed down enough that it temporarily takes a certain pattern a certain nuclear structure, a certain molecular structure. But don't be fooled. Everything that we call matter is really flows of energy that have temporarily taken on this shape. So what the physicist says about matter and energy, 
the mystic says about God and the world. The world is really God taking on a certain form. I don't want questions during the talk, but I'm going to violate my principle. One question, please. If you're trying to cleanse God of anthropomorphism, what do you do with the Torah? That was Maimonides' great problem. He's trying to interpret the Torah, and the Torah says God's arm. So Maimonides says, if it says God's arm, that's just a metaphor for saying God is powerful. Even saying God is powerful is not exactly right, because it's still positive. Maimonides tries to read everything in the Bible as metaphorical. It's trying to teach us something, don't take it literally. That's what Maimonides is really saying, don't take the Bible literally. And the Kabbalists agree, but then they also move into, into new, new directions. Okay, let's, let's continue this. I promise to come back to other questions afterward. So if you believe this, if you, if you believe that God is seated on a throne, that's, that's corporealizing God, that's turning God into a body, then you'll fall into one of the traps that destroy faith. Your awe of God is limited by your imagination. Now, why does he say that destroys faith? Maybe it's the wrong way to picture God, but why does it destroy faith? You could say it gives you faith. If you can picture God as Father in heaven, maybe it's, that's not accurate, but at least it gives you something to hold on to. I think Cordovero is worried that you might outgrow that childish notion of God. If you start to question, is, is there really someone up there who's Father in heaven? If you start to question that kind of childish fantasy, then you might be left with nothing at all. If you reject that God, then what do you have instead? You might say, uh, who needs God at all? So that kind of inadequate, childish theology could lead to a total loss of faith. So what does Cordovero suggest instead? How should we picture God rather than Father in heaven? Number, paragraph number two. But if you are enlightened, you know God's oneness. You know that the divine is devoid of bodily categories. These can never be applied to God. Then you wonder, astonished, who am I? Right? Don't ask who is God. That's too hard to answer. Start with something more immediate, more accessible, more psychological. Who am I? And when you come down to it, I'm really pretty puny. I'm a mustard seed. Why does he pick a mustard seed? Because it's the tiniest seed he can imagine. I'm a mustard seed in the middle of the sphere of the moon, which itself is a mustard seed within the next sphere. So it is with that sphere and all it contains in relation to the next sphere. So it is with all the spheres, one inside the other. And all of them are a mustard seed within the further expanses. And all of these are a mustard seed within further expanses. Your awe is invigorated. The love in your soul expands. Okay, so what's he saying? He's talking about spheres and concentric circles. What's going on here? This is really still in the world of medieval astronomy. Around the time of Cordovero, there was a scientist in Europe named Copernicus who was starting to formulate his theory, right? And his radical revolutionary theory, which he was too frightened to publish, during most of his lifetime was what? Copernicus taught us that we're not the center of the universe. The sun is the center of our solar system, not the earth. But in here, we're still in the old notion of the earth being the center. This is what all Europeans believe, Jewish, Christian, Islamic, right from the time of Aristotle until Copernicus. Okay, for those 1,800 years, 
Most scientists believe that the Earth was the center. And that's what we have here. So who am I? I'm a tiny seed in the middle of the sphere of the moon. Why the moon? He's not talking about the moon. He's talking about the orbit the moon makes around the Earth. That immense circle, compared to me, I'm just a tiny seed compared to that huge circle. But that circle compared to the next sphere, because in the medieval view, you have concentric spheres, one bigger than the other. Basically, the Earth, the Sun, about five planets that they recognized, that's, the, that's these concentric circles he's talking about. So let's translate this into modern terms. I'm tiny compared to the planet, but the planet Earth is pretty small compared to the solar system. Right? And the solar system is tiny compared to the Milky Way galaxy. Right? We circle, actually, the Milky Way and all other things, the, the, the solar system and all other solar systems in the Milky Way, all of them circle around what? The black hole in the middle of the Milky Way. It's only in the last 20 or 30 years that astronomers have realized that most galaxies have a black hole. And ours almost certainly does. So everything in our galaxy is circling around the middle of the galaxy, that black hole. How long does it take for the sun and our solar system to get around one time around the black hole? About 250 million years. That's one, that's one galactic year. So who am I? And, and the Milky Way, of course, is just one of maybe 100 billion galaxies. And that's just our universe. Maybe there are other universes. Maybe there's a multiverse. Not a universe, a multiverse. So who am I in relation to this immensity? That doesn't necessarily leave you with a very uplifting feeling. right? It makes you feel more lost in space. So why is that a more fulfilling view than the old traditional view that we're here? The sun is going around and God is above it all. For Cordovero, it's more fulfilling because we are actually part of infinity. It's not that we're here and infinity is out there. If infinity is infinite, then it includes us. So we're part of this immensity. We're part of the oneness of it all. We're actually part of God. You might say each of us is one fraction of infinity. A fraction of infinity. How big is a fraction of infinity? Infinite. Sounds bizarre, but if the fraction of infinity weren't infinite, then we could figure out how big infinity is. If we know how big a fraction is, we know what fraction it is, but we can't. Even a fraction of infinity is infinite. So you might say each of us shares in the infinity of Ensof, of God. Something in us, there's a spark in us that's part of something greater. And that, for Cordovero, is a more fulfilling theology than thinking there's someone up there, Father in Heaven, who's taking care of it all. It's more accurate to say we're part of this oneness. We're part of this infinity. Let's look a little more closely at what he's going to say about God. Right hand of the page, non-duality. This again is Moses Cordovero, writing in the 16th century. By the way, all these passages are from uh, my book, The Essential Kabbalah, which uh, is available outside for signing and purchase. The essence of divinity is found in every single thing. Nothing but it exists. It here means God. Nothing but God exists. 
Since it causes everything to be, no thing can live by anything else. It enlivens them. Its existence exists in each existent. You may not have seen that word very recently. Existent means simply any existing thing. So God exists in any existing thing. Do not attribute duality to God. We'll see in a moment what he means by duality. Let God be solely God. If you suppose that en sof, okay, here's that term, en sof, literally there is no end. It's the Hebrew word for infinity. If you think that en sof emanates, that en sof flows until a certain point, and that from that point on is outside of it, you have dualized, God forbid. Realize rather that en sof exists in each existent. Do not say this is a stone and not God. God forbid. Rather, all existence is God, and the stone is a thing pervaded by divinity. This sounds strange to hear a rabbi say, don't say it's a stone and not God. After all, the Ten Commandments is what? Don't bow down to any image. And Cordovero is certainly not going to bow down to an idol, but he refuses to exclude God from the stone. He says it's a mistake to think there's a stone and then there's God. The stone is actually divine energy that has turned into this particular manifestation of matter. But underneath, it's, it's animated, it's pervaded by a divine life force. Okay, the last teaching of, uh, on this page, again, Cordovero, before anything emanated, okay, that's a technical term in mysticism, meaning before anything emerged, before anything began to flow from the divine source, there was only Ensof. Okay, before the world existed, there was only infinity. Ensof was all that existed. Similarly, after it brought into being that which exists, there is nothing but it. So what is he saying? Before creation, there was only Ein Sof. And now that the world exists, what's the situation? There's still only Ein Sof. But Ein Sof has now taken on all these forms that we see. There is nothing that is... You, you cannot find anything that exists apart from it. There is nothing that is not pervaded by the power of divinity. If there were, Ein Sof would be limited subject to duality, God forbid. So what does he mean by duality? Usually when a religious writer uses that word duality, they mean God and another God, right? If you have two gods, you could criticize that as duality. But that's not what he means. What does he mean by duality? If you say there's God and, and the world, that's a false statement. That's heresy. It's a heretical statement to say there's God and the world. What should you say? There's God who has become the world. That's his theology. That's his view of God. God is energy that becomes all of material existence. Rather, God is everything that exists, though everything that exists is not God. They always do that. You know, you feel like you just about got it, and then they say something that sounds so impenetrable. Okay, we'll come back to that. That's a koan. It's a Jewish koan. 
It is present in everything and everything comes into being from it. Nothing is devoid of its divinity. Everything is within it. It is within everything and outside of everything. There is nothing but it. So what's he saying? You almost feel like he's stumbling over his own words at the end there. He says something and then he has to unsay it because words don't really do justice to what he's trying to say. But let's come back to that, that perplexing line we just read. God is everything that exists, though everything that exists is not God. Maybe he means God is the totality, but don't be fooled into thinking that any one thing is the totality of God, right? Don't worship any person. Don't worship anything. Don't commit idolatry. You could say this is the Jewish critique of Christianity. It's not that Jesus wasn't a great teacher. He, Jesus was a Jewish mystic. Jesus was a great teacher. But then some people fell into the trap of idolizing Jesus, of turning that one spiritual teacher into divinity. So don't commit mental idolatry. Don't become fixated on any one image or any one manifestation of the divine. Let God be the totality beyond any specific limits. Okay, if this sounds a little bit like it's ethereal and up there in the air, we're going we're gonna to come down and ground it in a moment. Let's turn the page, and we're going to look at the two passages on the left, concealing and revealing. When powerful light is concealed and clothed in a garment, it is revealed. Though concealed, the light is actually revealed. For were it not concealed, it could not be revealed. Okay, it's teachings like this that give mysticism a bad name. Okay, again, he's using language. It sounds like, like nonsense. What is he talking about? Concealed is revealed. Well, now he explains this is like wishing to gaze at the dazzling sun. Okay, this is really a passage for a phoenix. I came this morning, I said to, to the rabbi, that, you know, it's not only is it warm, it's bright, it's just, it's dazzling. Okay, it's so bright you can't look at it, right? You walk out on a typical, beautiful winter day in this part of the world, and you can't even, you can't bear the light, it's too much. What would happen if you actually try to look at the sun? It's so bright you can't see it. It's so bright, it's going to damage your eyes. So how can you see it? You can only see it by hiding it, partially. You can only see it by filtering it. That's what he says. Its dazzle conceals it, for you cannot look at its overwhelming brilliance. Yet when you conceal it, looking at it through screens, you can see and not be harmed. So it is with emanation, okay, with the divine flow, with the divine process. By concealing and clothing itself, it reveals itself. So paradoxically, the only way to see God is to conceal God. Some of the light will come through, some of the power will come through, but not so much that it will be fatal. It's like nuclear energy. You can't get too close to it, and yet you recognize its, its power. So what is he talking about? He's, he's, he's using the metaphor of looking at the sun of sunlight, but he's really talking about the relationship between God and the world. What is the world for him? The world is actually God disguised. God in camouflage. 
because that's the only way we can handle it. If there were pure, direct contact with God, we, we, we would be destroyed. We'd be overwhelmed. Like the, the Torah says, Lo yirani ha'adam v'chai. No human can see me and live. But nature is really God concealed. In fact, the mystics like to play with gematria. I'm sure many of you have heard of gematria, the numerical value of Hebrew letters and words. Every letter in Hebrew is also a number. So every word, you can find out its, its value by adding up each letter, right? So the word for God, Elohim, is 86. Aleph is 1, Lamed is 30, He is 5, Yud is 10, Mem is 40. Take my word for it, it adds up to 86. The word for nature is also 86. Hateva, nature. So nature has the same numerical value as God which for a Kabbalist proves that nature is God. It's very dangerous to use gematria. You can prove anything. I, I use it to remember my hotel room. <laughs> I come up with a word that equals 324. I say, okay, now I won't get lost. So it's useful for that. Sometimes gematria is convincing. That one is nice. God is nature. By the way, who else said that? God is nature. I heard this name today from someone. Spinoza. It's one of Spinoza's great insights. God is nature. Where did Spinoza learn that? From Kabbalah. Spinoza had Kabbalistic teachers. Spinoza, of course, was excommunicated. Why was he excommunicated? Not because of his radical theology. That was good Kabbalistic mysticism. Because he didn't follow the Torah. And because he said the Torah isn't the word of God. He said the Torah was written by people. So that's why he got in trouble with the local Jewish community in Amsterdam. But his teaching, his theology, was really based on Kabbalah. It's kind of a secularized Kabbalah. So God is nature. You find that here. You find that in Spinoza. Because Spinoza also said God isn't someone up there. God is, is the world. God is, becomes the world. Okay, let's look at the next one. This is beautiful. It's only four lines. This is not by Cordovero. It's by another, another Kabbalist writing in the 16th century. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. Sounds like the Big Bang. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. He's writing this in the 1560s, 1570s, very close to what uh, Stephen Hawking would say. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. With the concealment of the light, the things that exist were created in all their variety. This is the secret of the act of creation. One who understands will understand. Anyone know that in Hebrew? Vahamevin yavin. If you get it, you got it. One who understands will understand. You find that in medieval Hebrew writers. They sometimes say something that's a secret or say something very cryptic. And they'll say vahamevin yavin. One who understands will understand. Okay, so he's given us a couple lines. Then he says, this is the secret. And then he says, one who understands will understand. So really, if we're trying to figure it out, we don't have to figure out all four lines. We just have to figure out the first two lines. Because the third line says it's a secret. OK, it's a secret. The fourth line says, if you get it, you got it. OK, let's try to get it. So with two lines. If we can get these two lines, we know the secret of existence according to this Jewish mystic. So what's he saying? The first line, maybe that was a radical thing to say in the 16th century. But now every high school junior learns that in physics. 
with the appearance of the light the universe expanded. Okay, so basically he's saying the Big Bang. The second line is more intriguing. With the concealment of the light, the things that exist were created in all their variety. Why does he say with the concealment of the light? You would think he should say with the revealing of the light, things were created. So this is something about the interaction of revealing and concealing, appearing and concealing. You have this, you have this emergence of light or an explosion of light, but that wouldn't be enough to bring about creation. You also have to have the opposite, what he calls a concealment. A physicist would change just one letter. Instead of concealment, he would say congealment. If the energy congeals, if that energy of the Big Bang, it has to slow down, gravity has to start slowing it down <clears throat> so that stars can form, so that galaxies can form, so that the hydrogen gas <clears throat> excuse me, can start taking on a pattern of star and galaxy. That can only happen with the concealment, the congealment, the formation. So you can't have just this explosion of light, just that stage one, the appearance of the light. You have to have something to slow it down, to give it form, to give it structure, for that matter to freeze, to congeal, to take on shape. And I think he's saying that's the secret. The secret is really the interaction of those two, the appearance and the concealment. Let's uh, turn ahead a little bit. Turn the page uh, to where it says page three. And we're just going to study a couple more passages, and then I want to do a brief meditation with you, and then open it up for questions and discussion. So on page three, uh, look on the top left, bringing forth sparks. This is from Isaac Luria, a colleague of Moses Cordovero who lived in Sfat, 16th century. You can mend the cosmos by anything you do, even eating. Do not imagine that God wants you to eat for mere pleasure or to fill your belly. No, the purpose is tikkun. This is the word tikkun, meaning literally mending, repairing. Sparks of holiness intermingle with everything in the world, even inanimate objects. By saying a bracha, a blessing, before you enjoy something, your soul partakes spiritually. This is food for the soul. As the Torah states, one does not live on bread alone, but rather on all that issues from the mouth of God. Not just the physical, but the spiritual the holy sparks springing from the mouth of God, like the soul herself breathed into us by God. So when you're about to eat bread, say the motzi, Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech ha'olam, hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, who brings forth bread from the earth. Then by eating, you bring forth sparks that cleave to your soul. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So what is he saying? There's really a double nourishment that goes on, 
ideally, when you're eating. Obviously, your body is going to be nourished by the bread, but if you eat with some awareness, with some mindfulness, with some spiritual, mental attitude, then you're also nourishing your soul. You might say the spark in the bread nourishes your soul, and the physical crust of bread nourishes your body. So there's a physical and a spiritual nourishment. I think this really comes down to a matter of awareness and mindfulness, right? Not just to gobble the food as quickly as possible, but to eat it mindfully and to realize you're ingesting something of divine energy. Divine energy, which has taken on this material form, is now being converted by you back into energy. And there's both a physical and a spiritual nourishment that's going on. And he connects this with the bracha, with saying a blessing. So you might say, why does he need this whole thing of sparks and mysticism? Why not just say, say the bracha, and that way you're turning it into a spiritual experience. That's really what the rabbis did when they created these blessings, right? You don't find this blessing in the Torah. You have spontaneous blessings in the Bible. But this whole list of blessings invented by the rabbis was really an attempt to do what Luria is doing. But 1,500 years earlier, right? You, you know all the blessings, right? The blessings for water, for bread, for vegetables, for fruit, for buying a new suit, for buying a new dress. There's a blessing you can say. It's a wonderful blessing you can say if you see somebody whom you haven't seen for more than a year. Now, I could say that tonight because there are at least four or five people I've seen tonight. I haven't seen them more than a year, so I can say this blessing. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hametim. What did I just say? Who revives the dead. That's what you say. You see someone you haven't seen in more than a year. Say, thank you, God, for reviving the dead. person isn't dead, but it's as if you, you had no contact with that person. It's as if he or she didn't exist. Now he's come back to life. Now she's come back to life. It's a beautiful blessing. So there are hundreds of blessings. In fact, the rabbis say you should say a hundred blessings a day. It's not really hard because you could say a blessing over anything. It's a beautiful blessing. Blessed are you who's kept us alive and brought us to this moment. Right? What's that blessing called? Shehechiyanu. Right? That we say on special days, the first day of a holiday, the first or second day of a holiday, a birthday maybe, an anniversary. But really, you could say that all day. Blessed are you who's brought us to this moment. Okay, that's 10 o'clock. What about 10.01? Blessed are you, O God, who's brought us to this moment. 10.02. Blessed are you. You could say that all day. You could say that blessing a thousand times. So the, the blessing is, what is the blessing really? What's the whole idea of a blessing? It's what one scholar called, in a beautiful phrase, normal mysticism. Right? That sounds like a contradiction, because mysticism isn't normal. Mysticism is more intense. But he's saying, no, that's what the rabbis are trying to do, to turn everything into a spiritual experience. That's the purpose of saying a blessing. So why doesn't Luria just say the bracha? Why does he need this complicated theology of sparks and raising the sparks? Because by then, people were saying the blessings just by rote. They were just saying them automatically. There, were, there wasn't kavana. There wasn't a pure intention there. So Luria is trying to fill the blessing with new meaning by using this image of, of the sparks. Look at the next. When you eat and drink, you experience enjoyment and pleasure from the food and drink. 
Arouse yourself every moment to ask and wonder, what is this enjoyment and pleasure? What is it that I'm tasting? Answer yourself, this is nothing but the holy sparks from the sublime holy worlds that are within the food and drink. Okay, this is even more far-reaching. It's saying, not only is there holiness in eating, if something tastes delicious, that means you found a spark. Now, this is dangerous, because you could use this to justify you know, eating as much as you want. And there are even stories of Hasidic rabbis who piled mounds of food on their table, claiming they wanted to raise many sparks. <laughs> okay, but the point isn't really the more the better. The point is, you know, make each mouthful, make each taste into a rich, sensual, but spiritual experience. Be mindful as you're eating, not to take as much as possible, but so that every taste is uplifting, is fulfilling. And this applies not just to food, but really to all activity. That's what we find on the top right, the greatest path. When you desire to eat or drink, or to fulfill otherworldly desires, and you focus your awareness on the love of God, then you elevate that physical desire to spiritual desire. Thereby you draw out the holy spark that dwells within. You bring forth holy sparks from the material world. There is no path greater than this, for wherever you go, whatever you do, even mundane activities, you serve God. So it's not just eating, and it's not just religious activities, study, or prayer. Any activity, if it's approached mindfully, if it's done lovingly, can be a spiritual tool, can be a spiritual technique. So that even what seems mundane, what seems secular, becomes holy. There's nothing that's not potentially holy. That, this last one is really from Hasidism. This is a Hasidic author, not a Kabbalistic author, but you see here what Hasidism is. Hasidism is really the, the popularization of the Kabbalah, taking these mystical ideas and trying to spread them to the masses. Okay, let's uh, conclude this formal part of the presentation with this last one on page three, Ripples. And this I'd like to read it with you once and then to ask you to simply close your eyes and for us to meditate together as I read it a second time. This is written by Moses de Leon, great Kabbalist who lived in the 13th century and is probably the author of much of the Zohar. Thought reveals itself only through contemplating a little without content, contemplating sheer spirit. That's really a definition of meditation. What is meditation? Contemplating a little without content. Now that sounds impossible. How can you have a thought that's not a thought of something? Every thought is a thought of something. But you might say meditation is an attempt to think without getting stuck on any one thought. Just to allow the mental process, the mental sensation you might say the electrical energy as an impulse jumps over a synapse, you know, to, to feel the electricity going on in the mind without being fixated on this thought or that thought. Obviously, the thoughts are going to come. The thoughts come and go. 
And what does every meditation teacher say? Don't try to stop the thought, that's impossible, but don't hold on to the thought. Let the thought come, then say goodbye, another thought will come in, but maybe here and there you get one moment of just mental sensation of thinking without a specific thought. It might last a millisecond, but if you have it for one fraction of a second, you've tasted something more expansive than our normal mental process. And that's what he calls, I think, contemplating a little without content. Contemplating sheer spirit. And he says, you're going to lose it. The contemplation is imperfect. You understand, then you lose what you have understood. Like pondering a thought, the light of that thought, of that thought suddenly darkens, vanishes. Then it returns and shines and vanishes again. No one can understand the content of that light. It is like the light that appears when water ripples in a bowl, shining here, suddenly disappearing, then reappearing somewhere else. You think that you have grasped the light when suddenly it escapes, radiating elsewhere. You pursue it, hoping to catch it, but you cannot. Yet you cannot bring yourself to leave. You keep pursuing it. It is the same with the beginning of emanation. Okay, if you're trying to trace the origin of God, as you begin to contemplate it, it vanishes, then reappears. You understand, and it disappears. Even though you do not grasp it, do not despair. The source is still emanating, spreading. He's actually alluding to a Kabbalistic technique of meditation in which they would put a bowl of water in the sun. This is also very good for Scottsdale. You put a bowl of water in the sun and just watch the light reflect off the water. Maybe knock the bowl gently, just watch the ripples, see the light reflecting off of the water. That's an image for the mental process of thinking or of meditating or trying to picture God, something's going to flash and then it's gone. Don't think that you can hold on to it, but you can't help but be fascinated by that, by that rhythm, by that pattern. Let me ask you to put the sheets aside for a moment. Just sit comfortably. If you're amenable, then close your eyes. You don't have to if they find that difficult. And just uh, focus on your breathing. I'm going to read this once again, and then we'll share two minutes, that's an eternity, two minutes of, of silence together. Thought reveals itself only through contemplating a little without content, contemplating sheer spirit. The contemplation is imperfect. You understand, then you lose what you have understood like pondering a thought, the light of that thought suddenly darkens, vanishes, then it returns and shines and vanishes again. No one can understand the content of that light. It is like the light that appears when water ripples in a bowl, shining here, suddenly disappearing, then reappearing somewhere else. You think that you have grasped the light when suddenly it escapes radiating elsewhere. You pursue it, hoping to catch it, but you cannot. 
Yet you cannot bring yourself to leave. You keep pursuing it. It is the same with the beginning of emanation. As you begin to contemplate it, it vanishes, then reappears. You understand, and it disappears. Even though you do not grasp it, do not despair. The source is still emanating, spreading. Okay, let's slowly come back together. Let's open our eyes. Any thoughts or questions? Let me just say a word about uh, my online course, and then some questions will uh, arise. Uh, if you turn to the, the next page, actually the next page is something for, for homework. It's called Sexual Holiness. That I'll leave for you to, to explore and, uh, on your own. But after that comes uh, two pages an online Zohar course. This describes a course I began uh, last January on Zoom. I'm teaching out of my home once a week, covering about five pages of the Zohar each week in English. And it's a group of about 150 people right now. They're about all over, all over the world. Yes, you are in that, in that course. Good. Uh, there are about 40 rabbis. And then many people who aren't rabbis, some who, who know some Hebrew, some know a lot of Hebrew, some know no Hebrew. There's some non-Jews, although mostly Jews, mostly people who, who have studied some Torah, who might know a little bit of Hebrew, but certainly cannot read a Hebrew text. We're doing the Zohar in English, but many people have in front of them the original, the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Somebody in class prepares a PDF each week of the original, and I circulate that to everyone. So I'm teaching the English, but some people have the original in front of them. And we read and discuss. I teach for about an hour, and then we have questions for about 20 minutes. And during the week, there's a Facebook group that I created in which people pose questions and uh, discuss the passages. So it's described here. There's a fee for the course, but that's flexible. And people can um, email me. My email's at the end of this description. You can email me if you're interested. What we do is we, we meet for six sessions and then take a break and start another series of six sessions. In other words, it's an ongoing course. We never repeat. We're moving straight through the Zohar. And now after about nine, 10 months, we've covered about uh, 250 pages of the Zohar. We're still in volume one. There's one copy of volume one out there. You would have to acquire volume one, but that volume will keep us busy probably for another, at least another half year. And we're moving gradually through the Zohar, which is a mystical commentary on the Torah. There's a YouTube link here on this first page of the description. You can take a look there to get a, a sample. That's the first session of the very first series from last January, in which we cover the first few pages of the Zohar. So it's basically me teaching for an hour, but a group, about a third of the people participate live. About 50 people each week are live on Zoom. And most of the people, about two-thirds of them, watch the videos at their leisure. Anyone who signs up for a series gets access to all the videos of that series, the six weekly sessions. And that's access for as long as you, as you need. So any questions either about that in particular or about the material? Yeah. 
Yeah. Why is Kabbalah popular? What, what, what's the whole Madonna phenomenon, right? That's usually uh, there in the background. Madonna, of course, in a sense you could say helped to make the Kabbalah famous. Gershom Sholem, the great scholar of Kabbalah, really made it accessible. And the Madonna, you know, it used to be, I used to travel hitchhiking in my younger days, and sometimes I would explain to people what I was doing in graduate school, and it took about half an hour to explain what Kabbalah was. Now if I get in a taxi or an Uber and I say Kabbalah, they say, oh, Madonna, yeah. <laughs> so at least she has made people aware that there's such a thing as Kabbalah. The popularity of Kabbalah is a wonderful thing and a negative thing. The positive is that it makes people aware that there is a mystical tradition within Judaism, right? That there were Jews who imagined God as energy, not just God as someone up there running the show. So people are aware of that, at least a certain number of people. The negative side is that by popularizing it, you, see, you could say to a certain extent it's become diluted or cheapened, and it's turned into kind of a pop psychology, almost a self-help program. And some of the profundity of the Kabbalistic teachings have been lost. The Kabbalah Center, which is the group that got Madonna interested, they have, I think there's one probably in the Phoenix area, or there used to be, I don't know if there is now. They, too, are both positive and negative. The positive is that they've made people aware of Kabbalah. The negative is that they use very high-pressure techniques. You know, if you buy this set of Zohar, then you're next uh, operation at the hospital will go fine. Okay, or your house will be protected. If you have fire insurance, well, it's even better to have a set of Zohar in the house. That's better insurance. So that kind of claim and that kind of uh, financial coloring to it all is negative. The other negative thing is that they know historically the Zohar was really written in the Middle Ages. But a Kabbalist will often tell you, no, the Zohar was written back in the second century a millennium earlier. It makes the Zohar look better if it's older. Right now we think of something as newer, it's better, right? We, the iPhone 8, no, no, no. has to be the 10. No, it has to be the 11. So it used to be the older something was, it's better. Right, and that's why the Kabbalists claim that the Zohar was ancient. And the Kabbalah Center knows that the Zohar was really written in Spain in the 13th century, but they think it sounds better to say that it's ancient, so they promote that ancient pedigree. So that's a little bit of an answer. I think it's been popularized for good and for bad, but the positive thing is that people come to the rabbi and they say, well, what is this? And the rabbi has to learn it very quickly because in rabbinical school, Kabbalah was not taught, right? Everything except Kabbalah was taught. Now, finally, in rabbinical schools, they also teach Zohar and Kabbalah, but still many Jews are just discovering it and... Uh, I think, I, I would say that what I said earlier today too, one should be critical about the Kabbalah. I'm not saying that everything in Kabbalah is good to adopt. Some of the Kabbalah is outdated. Some of the Kabbalah is sexist or chauvinistic. Male chauvinistic and Israel chauvinistic. You can find you know, racist and chauvinistic, elitist statements in the Kabbalah, but we should be you know, bold enough to, to learn from it and criticize it too. Please. Could you say uh, a word or two from Zohar Kabbalah about God as a paradox, existent and non-existent? Mm. The stone is God, the stone is not God. Yeah, it's, we, we've seen a few examples of this paradoxical language. It seems that mystics and poets both appreciate paradox. 
Right? Very often, purely rational thinkers will be very uncomfortable with paradox, will try to explain it away. If a scientist runs into a paradox, you know, one of them is going to be left on the floor, either the paradox or the scientist. But a scientist does not like paradox. It wants reason to be able to explain it. The mystics are aware that our words and our thinking apparatus doesn't really grasp the most profound things. So in some ways, paradoxical language is the best way to describe ultimate reality. So God includes both good and evil. God exists, but he exists, it, it exists in a way which is beyond our normal categories of existence. That's why the mystics can call God nothing. They don't mean that God is nothing. They mean God is no thing that we're familiar with. So it's better to use that negative language than the positive. Right, going back to Maimonides. Maimonides said, don't say what God is, say what God is not. The Kabbalists say, okay, God is nothing, meaning God is no thing. So the paradoxical language they, they love. For some Kabbalists, it was too, it was too uh, theoretical to call God nothing. They wanted something simpler. Don't call God nothing. One Kabbalist says, just call God no. In Hebrew, lo, lamad aleph. What's the, what's the, what happens if you spell low backwards? El. El, God. So God, spelled backwards, is no. So that paradoxical language, that negative language, you, you find that mystics all over the world, and Kabbalah doesn't know. Please, both of you. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind, stand in a, a little louder so I can hear everyone. Yes. The one that we skipped. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage. It's by Moses de Leon. Let me just summarize it very quickly. He says, so, uh, you can look, look back at the page. Uh, it's page two. So get to the front and then just turn one page. The Journey of the Soul. What he says is that the soul, you know, usually you hear the notion the soul began in the bosom of Abraham or in God's bosom, that the soul is, has its heavenly abode and then unfortunately has to come down to earth. Plato says that. Plato and Christian mystics and Jewish mystics, that it's, uh, it's a great fall. It's a great loss for the soul to leave its spiritual bliss and to come down to this world of trouble and suffering and conflict, and the soul is always yearning to go back to heaven, right? It's a very common notion. He says something different. He says the soul is imperfect when it's in heaven. It's missing something. What could it be missing in heaven? It's missing the opportunity to taste the world. The soul has to be fulfilled by entering a body. So there's something positive about the physical embodiment. That's a beautiful theme in Jewish mysticism. It's one thing that distinguishes Jewish mysticism from many other forms of mysticism, praising the physical nature of reality. You know, very often in religion, and especially in mysticism, you get the feeling, this world, forget it. Who needs this world? Let's escape to God. Let's go off and meditate. Let's go to the mountain, the monastery, the cave, right? The Zohar and the Kabbalah is the opposite. If you don't live in the world, then you're not doing the work that needs to be done. Don't escape the world. Try to uplift the world try to redeem the world. So that theme comes across here too with the idea of the soul. The soul has to be embodied so that it can be fulfilled 
and then it, then it can return finally. Yeah, what about the past nine or ten months we've been doing? You know, with Zohar, it doesn't matter that much where you begin. Why? Because you're lost wherever you begin. <laughs> right? I, st I still feel that. So we began at the beginning, but the Zohar, you can, you can jump in volume nine. Basically, if you read, I would say, if you read 20 pages of Zohar carefully, you, you know the basic symbolism. You even know the basic vocabulary. The Zohar was written in Aramaic, and we're studying the English, but it's an Aramaic that's very bizarre. It's really his own invented Aramaic. They're invented words every few pages. They're what are called neologisms, right? Words that you won't find in any dictionary. No Aramaic dictionary will have the words the Zohar uses. Why? Because he invents his own words. You know, a lot of Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew, but with an aleph, for example, with an aleph at the end. For example, Abba. What does Abba mean? Father. Father. It's actually not Hebrew. What's the Hebrew? Av. I mean, in modern Hebrew, Abba is certainly modern Hebrew. But traditionally, Av is father. Abba is Av with an Aleph. So a lot of words in Aramaic, uh, Galuta, exile. Galut. Just Galut plus an Aleph. But the Zohar likes to do that even with words that don't exist in Aramaic, like Devekut, cleaving to God. It's a beautiful mystical notion that's in the Torah. You should cleave to God. So Devekut is the Hebrew. The Zohar says Devekuta. Not in any dictionary. It just takes Hebrew, adds an aleph. So he likes to do that. So the Aramaic is very challenging. The, the English, I tried to make it as weird as the Aramaic, <laughs> at least occasionally. So we're beginning in January, about halfway into volume one. Some people are signing up now for, ser for series one. In which I would say if, if, you, if you like a live interaction and being on Zoom, then it's good to sign up for the current or next series. If you want to begin at the beginning so you can, and, and you don't care about the live interaction, just want to, want to watch the videos on your own, you could sign up for the first series. You could do the first series and then jump to the seventh or eighth to get some of the basics. But basically, the very first session, which I have there as a YouTube link for free, I cover the spherot, the 10 spheres. And we did the first few pages. I think if you did that one video, which anyone can do from the link, you could begin uh, January with a new series. And you can email me if you want to talk more about it. People do, I would say, uh, I would say about half the people who are joining now, maybe two-thirds of them sign up for the live Zoom one, and a third sign up for series one, and then two and three. So you can, you can do it at your own. Last question for a moment. Yeah. Not taking the Torah literally, yeah. There are, there's much in the Torah that I would not take literally, but there are some moral teachings that are good. Sure, yes. Why not? Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that the Zohar rejects the literal. Okay, you, the, the literal meaning is stage one. And for some verses, that's plenty. You don't need a deep philosophical explanation of love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's one of the great lines in all of world spirituality. Many people think that Jesus invented it. But it's in Leviticus. Right? It's in the Torah. It's in the most technical, ritualistic book of the Bible. has the most beautiful ethical line in all of religion. Love your neighbor as yourself. So why do anything to that? Don't touch it. Sometimes the pshat, the simple meaning, is all you need. 
But sometimes there's a need to reinterpret it. Maybe the things we're uncomfortable with, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay, do we really want to live that out literally? Even the rabbis said, no, that's not what God meant. What did God mean? Monetary compensation. That's not the literal. So that's an example where the literal should be revised. And it didn't take the Kabbalah, the rabbis and the Talmud, they already revised it. And they don't say, God said this, but we're saying that. They say, no, what God really meant was monetary compensation. Right? You always have to be suspicious when someone says what this really means. Right? What, that, what that usually means is it doesn't mean that. What it really means is the pshat. So sometimes the pshat is enough. I'm glad you asked that because you can get the sense that the Zohar leaves the literal and wants only the mystical. Sometimes the most radical things in the Zohar are the literal. For example, we were talking about this earlier today too, the, 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 the Yom Kippur ritual, the scapegoat, right? We all, we, all, we all know that phrase, a scapegoat, right? Don't make him a scapegoat. Trump is going to make Barr the scapegoat. Or, you know, or Giuliani is going to be the scapegoat. Where does that word come from, scapegoat? From Leviticus, chapter 16, description of Yom Kippur, you have two goats. One goat is offered to God. The other goat escapes. doesn't really escape, but he goes off to the wilderness, and he's given to Azazel. That's what Leviticus says. One goat goes to yud to God. The other goat goes to Azazel. Who is Azazel? It's actually a demon. It's a name for a desert demon. So the Torah says, give one offering to God, give one offering to the devil. How can you give an offering to the devil? Usually the rabbis just avoid that, or they reinterpret it. They want to you know, get away from the pshat. The Zohar says, no. You actually have to, give, you have to give the devil his due. What does that mean? You have to have some outlet for your own lust. You have to have some outlet for your own greed. You have to have some outlet for your ego. If you try to go totally without ego, without lust, without desire, you're going to fail. You have to find some channel, some way to channel that or direct it maybe to sublimate it. You have to draw on that energy. You have to do something and not just reject it. So that idea is in the Zohar, and the Zohar makes a lot of it, in other, in other cases too, where you have to offer something to the demonic to assuage it, to keep it at bay. Very profound psychological reading, but it really is the pshat. It's a simple meaning. And there's an example of the most radical thing could be the, the simple meaning itself, which is often avoided. Okay, enough for one evening. I'll be happy to talk more with people, and I'll sign a few books. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.